Welcome to the Phenomena podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about underrepresented and underwritten women throughout Irish history. My name is Shauna Lee Lynch. I'm Maria Butler. We are coming to you from Corona lockdown at various points across Cork City. So apologies if the audio quality is not as good as it normally is. I don't own a microphone. <laughs> and we're trying our best. It's all you can do these days, eh? Yeah, no, it's it's been it's definitely been a, a strange few weeks. How are you keeping busy, Shauna? I'm working, working from home. I'm doing a lot of exercising. Been doing walking, kickboxing. I've been reading a lot, just rewatching episodes of old things that I like, and just trying to keep calm. What about you? I have been trying to become a yoga Zen master with uh, Yoga with Adrienne. Uh, I have so far injured my hand twice, but um, my aim is to be able to do a forward fold by the end of this. And other than that, I've just been reading and researching and I have watched the entirety of Brooklyn Nine-Nine in the space of about two weeks. It's a very happy show. What can I say? <laughs> yes. So this week it is my turn to talk and I am going to talk about a doctor because I felt like it was time to talk about a doctor. So the doctor I'm talking about is Dr. Kathleen Lynn. It's important to mention how many times she's a doctor because she was one of the first female doctors in the country. Really, really fascinating woman she had her finger in so many pies she was a suffragette she was obviously a doctor she was a revolutionary she was a politician she founded her own hospital she was 99% sure a lesbian but everybody refers to her partner who she lived with until her partner's death as her friend in everything that I've read about so I'm not 100% going to say that she was but I'm pretty sure that she was. So she was a trailblazer in like literally every sense of the word. So starting with Kathleen's origin story, she was born in Kong in County Mayo in 1874. She was Church of Ireland. Her father was a Church of Ireland rector, so she was relatively middle class. But the Mayo that she grew up in was severely impacted by the famine, as I imagine most of the country was. So she grew up kind of very familiar with this idea of like poverty and sickness around her. So as a result of that, she decided to become a doctor when she was 16. So she studied medicine at Cecilia Street, which was a Catholic medical school, which I find kind of interesting. And she graduated in 1899. After she graduated, she went to the United States for some postgraduate work. She came back to Ireland after that. She became a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in 1909. She had a private practice that she ran from her home at Nine Belgrave Road in Rathmines for a lot of her life. She attempted to get a position at the Adelaide Hospital, but was refused because she was a woman. So she eventually joined the staff of Sir Patrick Dunn's Hospital. And she also gained valuable experience at the Rotunda Maternity Hospital, and from 1910 to 1916, she was a clinical assistant at the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital. Would she have been like the only person in her cottage class, a, a woman, and like she was 16, she was really young, right? So she decided to become a doctor at 16. Okay. But she would have like worked towards that then. As 
regards would she have been the only woman in her medical class I can't truthfully answer that there might have been a few others but it definitely would have been in the minority at that stage she was the first female resident doctor at the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital in Dublin though so the barriers that were presented to her they were presented to her because she was a woman so if she wasn't the first or only in her class she was definitely amongst a a large minority of them so this is when it starts to get interesting (laughs) Uh, she was distantly related to Countess Markievicz apparently okay yeah, so in 1913, at the request of Countess Markievicz, she treated Helena Maloney, and Maloney stayed with Lynn while she recuperated, and apparently they used to have long talks, and Helena Maloney converted Kathleen Lynn to the national movement. So Lynn became active in the suffragist, labour and nationalist movements. And with Maloney and Markievicz, she supported the workers during the Dublin lockout in 1913. So apparently, actually, Lynn and Markievicz used to do like soup kitchens and help treat like the poor and the starving and the people who were living in the slums at the time. So because of her work during the 1913 lockout, she ended up becoming friends with James Connolly who I have a super soft spot for. I think he was the first historical figure I ever had a crush on when I was like 11. That is so. <laughs> Both. I mean, there are worse people to fancy. There are. <laughs> no, it's just cute. <laughs> um, so it's also around this time that she appears to have met Madeline French Mullen who was her, in inverted commas, close friend who she lived with up until Madeleine French's death in the 40s. So when James Connolly formed the Citizens' Army in 1913, he appointed Kathleen Lynn as the chief medical officer of the Citizens' Army. So for the next few years, she provided medical training to the recruits of the ICA and common man. And... She was also active in the smuggling of arms in preparation for the rising. So it wasn't just like the medical side. She was also like properly like. Had some things in her basket. Had some things in her basket. Or her doctor's bag. (laughs) But that's it. Like, you know, like who's going to stop a lady doctor? (laughs) They should put that on medical school. uh, (laughs) On the notebooks or something. (laughs) Encouragement. I've become a little bit mad during this lockdown thing so I'm laughing at things that I'm not even saying because I'm having like an entire conversation in my head. So yes this brings us up to the 1916 Rising and apparently James Connolly chose Kathleen Lynn to carry the plough and the stairs the official flag of the ICA from Liberty Hall to the GPO because she was a woman, a doctor, a Protestant, and a suffragette, and she embodied the type of republic Connolly envisioned, egalitarian, non-sectarian, and one based on gender equality. I just think that's really cool. Me too. I just did a thumbs up and realized that this is an audio (laughs) experience. You can't see that. So she actually served in City Hall during the Easter Rising to attend the wounded. So she started off just in a capacity of doctor now she did have a rank of either captain or lieutenant i can't remember right now 
but she had like a she had an official army rank but she went as doctor but then the senior officer at city hall sean Connolly, was shot and killed so she actually ended up becoming the head of city hall despite the fact that she arrived in as a doctor so it was her who presented the surrender when they were ordered to present their surrender so yeah she was a bit of a badass after city hall surrendered she was imprisoned in Kamenum jail she was there during all the executions she used or she was a prolific keeper of diaries so she started keeping diaries in 1916 and kept them right up until like the 1950s and the royal college of surgeons in ireland have her diaries and they've transcribed them but you have to go in to like book an appointment to see most of them but for the 1916 centenary celebration they released some of them up online so i read them all and man it is cool like because okay i don't know if you can tell by how animated i'm getting that i used to be really really fascinated by the whole idea of 1916 particularly around james Connolly. her diaries they mixed these really radical important historical occasions in like the birth of the irish nation in with just like really mundane things about like talking to the matron or having like prostitutes locked in with them or the fact that she missed her friend Madeline until they were actually they were put in a room together which I think is kind of funny and yeah so it's just you've got like her talking about like Grace Gifford and Joseph Mary Plunkett getting married and then like him getting shot the next morning and it's just it's so matter of fact and these were her friends so yeah her diaries are absolutely fascinating i would strongly recommend going up on the rcsi web page and you can read like the extracts of her diary from about the three weeks around the 1916 rising super short i i i fell down a wormhole with them on friday i did not sleep very well <laughs> um, but so she was in command for most of the executions she was later moved to Mount joy and then she was moved to a few other prisons before eventually being deported to Bath. Now, she wasn't imprisoned in England like a lot of people were because there was like a shortage of doctors because of World War One. So she was allowed to practice medicine. Now, apparently she was supposed to stay in Bath, but she ran away to London to be with Madeline, which is again why, like, I don't believe they were just friends. But that would have been like, I think that was like an untalked about thing that a lot of women had like friends you know or like people's aunts had friends you know I'm doing inverted commas you know that like everybody you know I think it's really cute <laughs> um there is actually when she moves to Mount Joy there's a diary entry about how like the conditions in Mount Joy are much more comfortable than they are in Kilmainham but that she'd give 10,000 I can't remember if it was 10,000 or 15,000 pounds to be back in Kilmainham with Madeline again there's a love story for you there you go in 1917 while all this is happening she became one of four women members of the national executive committee of Sinn Féin I kind of have a feeling that we're going to end up working our way through all of these women because they're super interesting yeah <laughs> she returned to Ireland in 1918 but went on the run and she was arrested towards the end of the year she was sentenced to be deported but was allowed to stay as a result of the Spanish flu. Oh. So the Lord Mayor of Dublin actually 
led calls for her release so that she could help deal with the Spanish flu outbreak. So that's how I actually came across her originally was because of the whole Spanish flu stuff. And she set up a derelict, or so herself and her friends acquired an old derelict house at 37 Charlemont Street. And the Irish women of the Citizen Army cleaned it up and Countess Markievicz and Countess Plunkett bought like bedding. And in this house, they treated loads of the members of the Citizen Army to flu vaccines. Uh, in the hope to inoculate them against the Spanish flu. And I think I read that none of them did actually get the Spanish flu. So they gave out like a few hundred vaccines, if not a few thousand vaccines. So, yeah, it's just a a side note in the history of Kathleen Lynn. But also, I think it's an important one with all the coronavirus stuff going on at the moment. Very relevant. Very topical. That's it, that she actually helped to spread. Helped to spread? Helped to prevent (laughs) the Spanish flu particularly I guess because if we look at all of the social distancing stuff and everything at the moment like a lot of these people would have been living in the slums in Dublin at the time and like social distancing wasn't an option so that brings us up to the elections the general elections where she where she campaigned for Countess Markovich and was like delighted that she got elected she herself actually ended up getting elected to the doll in 1923 but abstained in opposition to the treaty so she didn't take her seat in the end like someone else that we were talking about a few weeks ago mary mcsweeney so one of the big things one of the things that she's most known for in her life is she founded a children's hospital called saint ultons in 1919 And this is where it comes back to Maria's favourite disease, syphilis. I thought it was smallpox. No, smallpox is how I'd end the world. Syphilis is the disease that I find more interesting than any other disease known to man. Got it, got it. It always comes back to syphilis, Shonda. Always. So 1918, you have the end of World War I. 1919, you have all the soldiers returning from World War I. They reckoned that with all of the soldiers coming back, and with all of the English soldiers stationed in Ireland as a result of like the War of Independence, that there was approximately 15,000 men infected with syphilis returning to Ireland. Jesus. Apparently syphilis can be transmitted to babies when they're born if the parents have syphilis. So this was like a major public health issue that Kathleen Lynn was interested in. So she decided to start St. Alton's with the view of helping these babies who were born with syphilis. Also because it was like a major public health care issue where if the baby was born with syphilis, they could end up transmitting syphilis to like everybody else in the household. And then the whole country has syphilis. And you don't want that. Jeez, why didn't we learn about that in history? Or did we? <laughs> no, no one talks about syphilis. This is why I'm so interested. <laughs> they put that under their hat. I, I might have to do one episode just specifically about syphilis. That can be a sister podcast. Phenomenal diseases throughout history. <laughs> Only syphilis. <laughs> but yes, so she started this hospital to try and help syphilis babies is what I've written in my notes 
by the late 1920s, St. Alton's had 35 cots, a matron, a sister, five staff nurses and six probationers. Patients came from all over the country. In keeping with the social outlook of the hospital, annual reports contain detailed records of the background of the patients, including the proportion whose father was unemployed. In 1924, this is 44 percent. And the report also noted that 15 percent of the patients were illegitimate. St. Alton's also sought to support families and in the 1930s, the St. Alton's Hospital Utility Society was to establish model tenement homes as the Alexandria Guild had done in order to break the cycle of poverty and ill health. Now, one of the things that she also would have spearheaded with St. Alton's, which I forgot to say was co-founded with Madeleine French, was education around parents to make sure that like they once they were like treated in the hospital, that they were like able to take care of the children. I saw photos of some of the babies they were treating and they were really, really horrific. It's like way worse than the photos you used to see on the troker boxes when we were younger. Apparently Ireland had like one of the highest infant mortality rates in the world back then and she really was committed to try and like do something about that. The choker boxes. But they just had people like they just had children with flies on them. Yeah, but it was like that as well in with these babies these babies in Dublin like they were I I like I was genuinely traumatized looking at these photos the other day they should have warned me that these photos were coming up on the articles why what were they like was it the syphilis no what it was just how malnutrition the babies were and like just how sick they were and as I said like Ireland had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the world at the time and like it was literally like bone with skin stretched across it and like their lips were black and it was horrendous like she absolutely did amazing work with this and is that from poverty the the why the babies were malnourished yes sure like these would have been the kids up in like inner city dublin in the tenements in the tenements and everything poor babies but that was the thing and she was kind of arguing that you know, nobody was really taking care of the babies. And that's why herself and James Conley got on so well was because of all the socialist ideology. They were actually, they were quite worried after James Conley got executed that because he was such a proponent of women and women's rights that they could end up getting kind of like pushed out of everything as a result, which to be honest, is kind of what came to pass. Yeah. So she was, as I mentioned, involved in politics and all the politics that she was involved in was the idea of like promoting like the social cause and like the healthcare and public health and children and all this kind of stuff. And as the 20s progressed, it moved more away from children and more towards the idea of the family became really disillusioned with that so she actually left politics in 1930 to focus full-time on the hospital I just want to say one more thing about the war of independence thing two more things about the war of independence thing actually while she was like doing all of this hospital stuff she was also down with the with the flying columns in Tipperary I assume like doctoring but I wasn't able to find out exactly whether she was fighting or doctoring but I assume doctoring Um, and also her family didn't speak to her as a result of all of her politics once she was arrested in 1916 like they'd occasionally talk to her but she essentially lost communication with them 
there's some diary entries about like being allowed home for Christmas after like five years but only if she doesn't bring any like mobs with her or anything like oh god so they were pretty um conservative or against the the militant approach yeah was her dad a priest he was a yeah he was a, a rector in the church of ireland i missed that did you say that at the beginning yep <laughs> oh sorry i missed that but um yes yeah, so that kind of brings us up to the 1930s she was looking at uh, expanding saint Alton's, and they had found a premises for it that it was going to be really big and they were going to expand beyond infants under the age of one or two to have like young children but guess what happened what? the catholic church did not like the idea of a protestant woman taking care of potentially catholic children of course they didn't because god forbid they had helped children and that's the thing, because her whole thing was she was multi-denominational. Like, she didn't really care. Like, that's what I was saying to you. She, like, studied in a Catholic university. Um, she just wanted to help as many people as possible, irrespective of, like, religion or irrespective of, like, social class or anything like that. But, yeah, the Catholic Church got involved and blocked us. Time and time and time again, because they felt like the children of our nation should be taken care of by a Catholic hospital. Isn't that just so crazy, like, and against everything that's in the book that they say is so, you know, real. But that's the thing that was, like, really getting to me when I was reading about all of this stuff. I was just, like, they had the money, they had the premises, they had the design, and, like, they they were ready to go with it. And the Catholic Church were, like, actually stopping children from being helped. They probably didn't want a woman running it either that wasn't a nun. Also, don't forget, probably a lesbian. Probably, yes. And they may have known that. Or... God, so what happened? It didn't go ahead. It didn't go ahead, yeah. Eventually the hospital in Crumlin was built. But uh, yeah, no, it just essentially didn't go ahead. So then she got even kind of more disillusioned with everything. But she kept on going because... She was cool. Okay, <laughs> so I would have given up and gone home. So there's kind of two other major things that she would actually. I'm sorry, that's not true. There were loads of other things that she did. There's two more that I'm going to talk about. She worked with Maria Montessori. Have you heard of her? Yeah. So she brought Montessori over to Dublin to work with them so she could learn some of Maria Montessori's teachings around kind of like early childhood development. And she was one of the people who started introducing those concepts to Ireland. And Montessori is that you teach children through activities in it or like through through play. It's like de- developmental play. I just know that I went to Montessori school and it was. Yeah, it's like it's teaching children, learning through doing things that play teaches them things, that it's not just playing for the sake of playing, that they're learning skills through play. Okay, cool. And then the other thing that she did was, now she's not responsible, she's not credited for this, and rightly so, because she's not the one who completely did it but she very much facilitated it 
So she worked with Dorothy Stockford Price at St. Alton's to introduce the BCG vaccine against TB to Ireland to uh, eventually eradicate TB from Ireland because TB was a huge killer at the time. So yeah, she kind of introduced some new concepts and did some new things that make all of our lives much better at the moment. She also did like she was also vice chairman of the Save the German Children Society after the Second World War and she yeah she just did loads of cool stuff she didn't really stop until she died actually I think she only stopped practicing in St Alton's either eight months or five months before she died in the 1950s she died in 1955 at St Mary's nursing home in Dublin and she was given a full military funeral for her services during 1916 and during the War of Independence. There is a portrait of her hanging in the Royal College of Physicians in Dublin, and they also hold all of her diaries, which I mentioned. And there's a documentary that I read, or that I read about her. There's a documentary that I watched about her that's available on the IFI website, and I would strongly recommend watching it because it's very very interesting and what was the other thing oh also when I was researching her I found a petition now it's a few years old but they still haven't reached all the signatures that they want so I think it's still open so I signed it and it's to name the new children's hospital after Kathleen Lynn oh nice so I will share that link in the notes to this and if anybody is interested in doing that I would recommend signing the petition because she deserves to have the children's hospital named after her I think definitely that would be really nice it would be really good uh, and then more people would know about her and all of the work that she did and I was just again as with all of the women that we researched for this the more I read about her the more I was like how have I not heard of this woman and I actually started messaging friends of mine who were doctors being like have any of you heard of this woman and none of them had it's crazy and actually one of the legacies of St Alton's hospital was that it hired a lot of women and that it was the the case of you know the women who who subsequently came through the ranks while she was in St Alton's didn't necessarily have the same difficulties that she had to try and get into medicine so it kind of fostered this community of female doctors in the country very good so yeah, those are Maria's thoughts on Kathleen Lynn, <laughs> who is my new favourite Irish woman and will stay so for about two to three weeks when I find somebody else who I find equally interesting. But uh, yeah, look her up. She did everything. She was a revolutionary. She was a doctor. She was a suffragette. She founded a hospital. She helped save German babies. She was possibly a lesbian at a time when it wasn't acceptable to be a lesbian. She hung out with everyone. The documentaries that she, like the documentary talks about how she did all of this stuff and so used to go to like the theatre the whole time. And she was obviously did a lot of fundraising for St. Hilton's. She was your typical non-average renaissance woman in Ireland in the 19 what like for half a century from like 1900 to 1950s when she died yeah she was cool <laughs> you're a typical non-average 
And as you said, who's going to stop a lady doctor? Yeah, I, I'm going to read her diary. I think that sounds really interesting. And yeah, thanks for filling us in. And if you want to hear more episodes about some other phenomenal women that we've spoken about, some we mentioned even in this one, you can look through all of our past episodes and please find us on Instagram at Phenomenal Podcast and Facebook. And please like and subscribe. And tell your friends, even if you can't stand our voices, the women are too interesting to be left to languish at the forgotten annals of history. <laughs> yes, yes, there. That's a manifesto if ever there was one. All right, thanks for listening, guys, and tune in next week for more interesting Irish forgotten women languishing at the bottom of the annals of history. Hi!